sentire media. On the eve of the 8th of May, 1946, Italian Communist Party leader and Justice Minister Palmiro Togliatti had a lot on his mind. I imagine that politicians always do, but Italy after the Second World War was a place that could weigh heavy on most people's minds. The country was just one accident during a strike, one ex-fascist meeting a sticky end, or one arrest away from escalating into a potential civil war. The weapons the anti-fascist resistance fighters had used during the last months of the war hadn't just disappeared. They were hidden away, buried in haylofts or up in the mountains, just waiting for a reason to be used. Despite the complicated situation, however, there was one thing that Togliatti was pretty sure would go his way, and that was the upcoming referendum on the 2nd of June, in which the country would decide if it would remain a monarchy under King Victor Emmanuel III of Savoy or become a republic. Togliatti was sure that the image of the king was far too tarnished for the Italians to want to keep him around. After all, was it not he who had basically allowed Mussolini and his fascists to take over the country? He was sure that in the days following the vote, the Repubblica Italiana, the Republic of Italy, would be formed. After all, the major parties, the Christian Democrats, the Socialists, and communists, and, of course, the Republicans, were in favour. The only exception were the Liberals. Then, on the 9th of May, 1946, King Victor Emmanuel III abdicated in favour of his son, Umberto, who thus became Umberto II. The first Umberto, the grandfather of the new king, had been assassinated in 1900. Umberto II was no longer the king under whom the fascists had taken control and dragged the country into a devastating war alongside the Nazi regime. Instead, he was the king who had represented the country under the CLN, the Comitato di Liberazione Nazionale, the National Liberation Committee, which had been working with the advancing allies. He had, in truth, already ruled over Italy with the title of Luogotenente Generale del Regno d'Italia, General Lieutenant of the Kingdom of Italy, ever since Rome had been liberated on the 5th of June 1944. Plus, he was a more modern-looking, Hollywood-style king, tall and slim, with a beautiful young wife, Marie-José of Belgium, the kind of royal family a country wouldn't mind being represented by. Palmiro Togliatti was furious and released an uncharacteristically aggressive statement. L'ultima fellonia di una casa regnante di fedifraghi che dimostra ad ogni passo di mancare 
a quella buona fede costituzionale che è essenziale per chi deve regnare, non con una legge assoluta, ma con una costituzione che risponda alla volontà sovrana del popolo. It is the last act of treachery of a ruling house of oathbreakers that demonstrates with every step they take that they lack the good constitutional faith that is essential for those who must reign, not with absolute law, but under a constitution that answers to the sovereign will of the people. The game was afoot. Although the feeling, including that of the new king, was that the country would still opt for the republic, the monarchists now felt they had more of a sporting chance. Now, King Umberto II was not technically allowed to intervene in politics and was to stay neutral. But that didn't mean he had to stay closed up in the Quirinale, his residence in Rome. He was not to campaign actively in favour of the monarchy for the referendum, but when you are the monarchy, all you really have to do is walk around and, hey presto, you're a walking, talking election poster. In the days after he became king, a group of monarchists gathered outside the Quirinale and enthusiastically applauded Umberto, his queen and his children. The crowd then moved towards the Viminale, the head of the interior ministry. They were charged down by jeeps and horses. No one was killed, but many were wounded. The following day, the parties, except for the Liberal Party, called for a pro-Republican demonstration. These were just a few examples of the complicated public order situation that Togliatti, as Justice Minister, and Giuseppe Romita, the Interior Minister, had to deal with in the crucial turning point in Italian history. King Umberto went on a tour. Genoa, Milan, Turin, Naples, Sicily, Calabria and Sardinia. This trip soon showed the way different parts of the country were leaning. In the south, he was greeted with cheering and enthusiasm, while in the north, with cold indifference and even hostility with the occasional booing. Despite the high tension, there was no actual violence. This does not mean that everything in the country was quiet in general. Indeed, groups of armed bandits roamed the land not only in the south, and killing of ex-fascists was very common. Furthermore, left-wing pro-republican activists were opposed in the south, while pro-monarchist activists hanging posters in the north were harassed. In the lead-up to the election, Interior Minister Romita hardly left the ministry. He would dine there with the heads of the police and the carabinieri, as well as his wife, who would bring him clean clothes. The building was turned into a fortress, surrounded by jeeps, armoured trucks, soldiers on horseback, as well as the chevaux de frise, those sort of metal X thingies with a barbed wire to stop people passing. 
it seemed that the feared civil war could become a reality. Despite the warlike scenario and the tension, the 2nd of June came and went without incident. The Italians voted. They were not only voting for the referendum, but also for the Costituente, the first parliament of the new era that would have the task of setting out a new constitution. King Umberto II voted and, as was his duty, he remained neutral, putting in a blank ballot on both votes. Now, all they had to do was wait. As the results started to come in on the night between the 3rd and the 4th of June, Giuseppe Romita, interior minister and staunch republican, started to despair. The monarchy was winning. He did not inform anyone except the prime minister, Alcide de Gasperi, who in turn informed the office of the king, who started to hope again. No one else was informed, also to maintain public order. For a night and a day, in the heart and minds of those in the know, Italy would remain a monarchy. Then, during the night between the 4th and 5th of June, the votes of the North started to come in. The votes for the Republic quickly overturned those for the monarchy. On the 5th of June in the morning, the newspapers were still cautious with their headlines. But by lunchtime, when the special editions came out, they were declaring for the Republic. The votes were clear. 10 million 718,502 for the monarchy, with 45.73%. 12,718,641 for the Republic, with 54.27%. As if anyone had actually needed it, the vote was further proof of the North-South divide. All of the provinces of the South except for Latina and Trapani, resulted in a majority for the monarchy. And in the north, everywhere except for Cuneo, the majority was for the Republic. The situation of the Prime Minister's party, the Christian Democrats, was interesting. The party was officially for the Republic. The Catholic Church, the inspiration behind the Catholic party, was officially neutral. However, with a series of local priests working on people's opinions, of the around 8 million Christian Democrat voters, 6 million ended up voting for the monarchy. A taste of the political subterfuge which was to characterise all of Republican history. The announcement by the government on the 5th of June was not the official announcement. Indeed, the final word on the matter was up to the Corte di Cassazione, the Supreme Court, who would give the official announcement on the 10th of June. In any case, on the 6th of June, while the world celebrated the anniversary of the D-Day landings, Umberto II sent his family away to Naples to board a ship to then go to exile in Portugal. The now almost ex-queen refused to leave and a secretary was sent to see her off with permission to use force if necessary. 
At this point, it was just a question of waiting for the 10th of June, when the Supreme Court would meet and make the result official. Easy, right? Everyone, just sit back, chillax, and enjoy the victory, or accept the defeat. It was just a question of formalities now, right? Wrong. A day later, a group of legal experts pointed out that the referendum had been set up with conflicting rules. It was not clear if the winning side simply had to get one more vote than the losing side, or if there also had to be a quorum of 50% plus one of the total registered voters, and not enough people had voted to reach said quorum. There were two problems here. First, the Interior Minister Romita hadn't said anything about the blank or null votes that would make up the total. And, to make matters worse, it seemed they had already been destroyed. The monarchists and the king himself held on to this with a determination like my daughter used to have when I would have to drag her away from something to have a shower. Tensions began to rise again. When the tenth finally came, the head judge, Giuseppe Pagano, after announcing the results, went on to declare that the court would meet again to discuss appeals that had since arisen. This was a further hope for the king and his camp to hold on to, and hold on they did for dear life. On the 11th of June, tensions began to rise even further, and the government began to fear that the king would declare it disbanded and nominate a new government, something he had the power to do under the existing pre-Republican rules. On the 12th, skirmishes in Naples between monarchists and the police left two officers and nine protesters dead. Prime Minister de Gasperi decided to act. He declared himself the new head of state, thus substituting the king and acting upon the results of the election as certified by the court on the 10th of June. The king now had two choices. He could either accept the fait compli or oppose the government and risk civil war. King Umberto II chose the former. He said goodbye to his staff and made his way to Ciampino Airport and took a plane to join his family in exile in Portugal. The Italian tricolour flag with the symbol of the royal family that flew over the Quirinale, the last in the nation to be exposed on a public building, was taken down after the king left. The House of Savoy, over a thousand years old and one of the oldest in Europe, would not be allowed back to Italy until the 10th of November 2010. Italy no longer had a king. The Republic was born and the Republic had a president. In the two years that followed, the Costituente, the parliament that had come from the election of the 2nd of June 1946, worked to give itself a constitution that is still seen as a great document today, a model for other constitutions. In the 75 years since Italy decided it would be a republic, it has had its ups and downs.
The economic boom of the 50s helped to make it one of the top industrialized countries in the world, and it was a founding member of the European Union. It has reached levels of excellence in many sectors, such as fashion and food, making the Made in Italy brand one of great prestige. It has continued to make great contributions, also on a cultural level, in film, music and literature. However, there are many, many dark pages of the Italian Republican history, and still very many, very deeply rooted, serious issues we are forced to deal with to this day. In short, we are still hard at work trying to make the promises held in our constitution a reality. Or at least, some Italians are. Thank you very much to you for listening. We record this on the 2nd of June 2021, 75 years after the initial referendum that created the Italian Republic. This episode is a repeat of one from 2018. As always, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and on Instagram. You can go to our support page and become a Patreon supporter and have access to extra content or donate via PayPal. We would be very grateful if you do that. Thank you very, very much. Once again, thanks very much to everyone for listening. And until next time, Arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.